The following is a presentation of Dating Kinky. Kinky connections and kinky education. We're kinky done differently. What women and other wonderful humans want. A frank and fun discussion about the way people approach each other for romance, relationships, friendships, or other partnerships that make us happy, as well as an intimate discussion about how to connect with our own authentic self, with questions asked by a guy. And now, here is your host, John, or as we call him around here, hi there, catsuit. Hello there, Nookie, and welcome to What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want, a show about how people connect with each other and to their own genuine selves. And today we visit with one half of the writing team that brought to the world the acclaimed book, The Ethical Slut, and with it, created what some call the Poly Bible. Janet W. Hardy is a writer and sex educator and founder of Greenery Press. She has also been published as Catherine A. Litz and Lady Green. She's the author or co-author of 11 books and frequently collaborates with Dossie Easton. She is an inductee of the Society of Janice Hall of Fame and has written other books on BDSM and relationships. Now let's meet Janet W. Hardy on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. It's five questions about memorable firsts. We call it the first five. First time you ever put pen to paper and realized it was going to become a book. The first time I had already written an article about sexual domination for beginners with the fond hope of selling it to Cosmopolitan, which was, yeah, that, that was not gonna happen back then. These days they might. Um, but I, at about that time, I was asked to do a, an intro class for uh, novice female dominance and their partners at an erotic boutique in San Francisco. And I showed the owner the article and she said, oh, this is great. Um, can we use it as a handout? And I said, no, because it's still making the rounds of magazines. I can't do that, but I can write you another one. So I sat down and started writing another one and it kept growing and it kept growing. And at one point I turned to my partner and said, you know, this is 10,000 words now. And he said, you know, that's the length of a small book. And I said, you know, you're right. <laughs> so that, that, was, that was the first um, book. First time anyone ever called you different? Oh my God. <laughs> that goes back so far into my past. Um, I have no idea when the first time was, but I was undoubtedly very small at the time because I have always been kind of a weirdo. I've never had much sense of how to fit in, particularly as a female person with greater social groups. I think I might've been able to um, blend in a little bit more had I been a boy, uh, but I just never was very good at being a girl. And then I grew up into not being very good at being a woman and somehow it's all worked anyway. 
first time you ever felt normal? Oh, normal in what sense? I mean. And I that's spent, what makes the question intriguing because it's I, about I spent how 10 you years of my life in a heterosexual monogamous marriage with two kids and a house in the suburbs. So that was pretty normal. And then I sort of woke up one morning and realized, whoa, I, I don't remember ever actually deciding to do this. It just kind of happened. And it doesn't actually feel like such a great fit. So my husband and I talked a bunch of things over. I had just recently become aware of myself as a kinky person. Although once I caught on to that, I could remember fantasies going out, going back to, you know, if not toddlerhood, then not long after that. Um, so we tried it together, God bless him. He was willing to give it a shot for my sake, but it wasn't working for him and it was working for me. Um, and eventually it got to the point where we, if we had had a book like The Ethical Slut, I think we probably would have managed. We would have opened the relationship and I'd have had play partners and he'd have been all lovers and we would have raised our kids and it would have been great, but we didn't know how. So we parted, we remained close friends. Um, and even if we could have gotten the sex thing solved, I think it's probably better that we did part. I think we were uh, enmeshed in some ways that were probably not too good for either of us. And um, I think our, our natural set point was friends. And our mistake was in getting married and having kids that, although we're terrific as co-parents too, we've been very easy about raising our kids together. We always had joint physical and joint legal custody and no big conflicts there. So, you know, we would have been great co-parents. We would have been great friends. It was the spouse's part that wasn't quite working. Uh, and once we got over having to be spouses, we got to do the other stuff that we were good at. <laughs> so that 10 years before I came out to myself was probably the closest I've come to normal. First kink scene and your feeling coming out of it. Not counting the ones with my then husband. Um, my first scene with someone who wanted to do kink was freaking disastrous. Um, I did not know what questions to ask. Uh, it turned out our kinks were not well matched, his whole thing. He was one of these guys that likes to be walked on. And, you know, I sort of walked around on him for a while and it was like, yeah, okay, so I've been walking. <laughs> what, what am I supposed to be getting out of this? <laughs> um, and it, it was just, I told my best friend about it afterwards. And I said, well, he wanted to be walked on. So I walked on him and I healed shoes and she thought about it. And she said, you know, that sounds really boring. <laughs> so it was, it was really boring. And also, he told me as we parted that his last girlfriend had been willing to step on insects and mice for him while he watched. It was like, yeah, okay. Thank you for sharing. Fly, be free, <laughs> send a postcard. <laughs> so I never saw him again. That was not my best day. Fly, be free, and then you <laughs> stepped on him. Um, <laughs> first time you ever received an unsolicited dick pic in your reaction to it. You know, I never have. I am, I am the one woman you know who has, it's partly because I read Butch, I think, and partly because I'm, I'm of an age to be someone's mom. And because I have some fairly strong boundaries, nobody has ever sent. I did get some unsolicited cunt pics once. 
but I've never gotten an unsolicited dick pic. That's the first time anyone has ever answered in that way, and I'm fascinated. I know, I know. It's, it, it makes me rare, uh, yet another way in which I'm weird, right? <laughs> but it does lead to the question, does receiving an unsolicited cunt pick, as you put it, is that as jarring as receiving an unsolicited dick pic? Um, in a different way. I did not understand her motivation in sending it to me. Uh, I, I understand why men do it, I think, at kind of a gut level. I think it's a bad idea, but I think the logic goes, well, gosh, if I were a woman, I would like to get this, so I'll send it to her. Um, but the cut pick, I just did not know why I was getting it. Um, whether she was someone I had met, it was back when I was traveling a lot and meeting a lot of people. And maybe she was someone I had met who wanted to proceed with me, but I, I just didn't respond to it and she disappeared. So it was an unsolicited dick pic always feels a little threatening just because of the um, power structure between men and women and having a man go into something sexual before you've indicated any interest in doing that feels invasive and intrusive in a way that um, I never had a sense of that with the woman. Hi, this is Jane Boone, the author of the novel Edge Play. It's a revenge fantasy where the big short meets 50 shades of gray. Only the women wield the whips and the billionaires submit. You can find it at Amazon in paperback or for your Kindle. And be sure to check out my episode with Tara Indiana right here on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Thank you. Realizing that you're polyamorous can be a wonderful insight. The Polyamory Dating Guide is a book about finding other people who share your view of polyamory and want to share it with you. This book includes a variety of sections on poly-specific dating such as navigating online dating with a review of poly-specific dating sites and how to make a profile that works, real-time dating tips that will tell you where to find poly and people and how to make a positive impression, how to date as an existing couple, and if you should, dating as an introvert, queer in dating, and lots more. Get your copy at polyamorydatingguide.com. Are you liking what you're hearing? Check out the Total Archives wherever you find your podcasts. And please remember to subscribe so you don't miss a minute. And while you're there, help John out by giving him a rating and review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's get back to what women and other wonderful humans want. Janet, before the break, we mentioned the word cunt, and I'm blushing just saying that, <laughs> quite honestly. But you have taken a lot of words that are uncomfortable to say by some and made them more comfortable. And in your book, The Ethical Slut, written with Dossie Easton, you take the connotation of the word slut and turn it right on its ear. How groundbreaking was this thought? Um, at the time, people were really taken aback by it. You know, we, we did not intend to call the book that. We've, we were calling it that as kind of a joke between us. It was a, a, a line that Dossie had come up with. And so that was our working title. And we thought it was funny and um, figured we'd figure out the real title by the time the book went to print. And then the book was done and we 
we passed titles back and forth for a couple of weeks and they all sounded like textbooks. They were so dry, you know, um, open relationships in the new millennium type of names. And um, finally, you know, it's called the ethical slut. That's what we call it. And um, we told some people and they said, no, you have to call it that. Uh, so it was, it was with considerable fear and trembling that we brought it out under that name. But I think it was a smart, if slightly clueless choice to do that. I, if, if we had, if, if the book had not been self-published, we wouldn't have been able to do that. No sane publisher would have let us publish a book uh, under that title. But I, I self-published the first edition with my company, Greenery Press. And then by the time um, it went to Ten Speed Press, which is who publishes it now, it was already well enough established that they were willing to go with us on the title. Um, anyway, so back to the question. Uh, I think it was easy for the two of us to use that word because both of us had spent a lot of time in gay male community mm. where, you know, the guys call each other sluts all the time and it's, <laughs> it's affectionate and it's teasing and it's all the things we want to, to be with our, the people we love. And so it, it didn't feel like a stretch to either of us to call ourselves sluts or to refer to other people as a slut because you know, if you think a word that says you have a lot of sex is an insult, what does that say about your values around sex? Mm -hmm. um, so that was um, why we decided to play our part in redeeming the word and reclaiming it. Um, and, you know, we're certainly not the only ones who have done that, but I, I think we helped a lot. I don't know if the slut walks would exist without our example, but they might not, or they might, I don't know. Uh, but there, it's an important thing to look at values around promiscuity in general, and specifically female promiscuity. And <clears throat> that's all kind of balled up and stored in this little four-letter word called slut. And you can look at a lot of things by looking at that word. So we were happy to delve deeper into that set of values. The first time I heard the word was in the 1970s on Saturday Night Live when Dan Aykroyd Jane, said to Jane Curtin, you're a slut. <laughs> right. Once again, you missed the point entirely. And yes, I remember it well. I remembered the word from that sketch for the longest time and had the negative connotation through growing up. Yeah. Now that I am living in the time that I'm living in and have heard so many of my friends, and this is not an exaggeration, especially being in the kink scene. So many of my friends call your book their permission to be who they are. Yeah. That's Just how proud are you of being able to do that for so incredible. many women? Incredible, incredibly proud. There is rarely a week in which we don't get a piece of mail from somebody saying, you saved my life, you saved my marriage, you made it possible for me to be who I am. Um, and you know, writing is a lonely pursuit. And so it means a lot to get that kind of feedback. Um, because once you launch a book out into the air, um, it's its own thing. It's not something you hear about much anymore, except if you're lucky you get some royalty checks. So when, you, when we hear from readers, it's incredibly validating and rewarding. Um, 
and especially because what we're being validated for is making the longer I do this, the more I'm convinced that what really shocks people about sex positivity or sluttiness or whatever you want to call it, isn't that we do it, it's that we're not ashamed of it. Mm -hmm. I've heard so many sort of straight people say, well, yeah, I, you know, a lot of people do that, but they don't all talk about it. Um, if, if we're making it possible for people to be who they are without shame, I can't think of a single, single thing I would rather do, do in my life than that. 20 years ago, you brought this book out and the world was a much different place oh, Lord, back yeah. 20 years ago. Describe the atmosphere and the ethos that went in to this world just at the turn of the millennium to try to give some context to some of our younger listeners who are going, well, it's always been this way. Oh, no, it hasn't. Oh, no, darlings, it has not always been this way. Um, Back then we had to explain the word polyamory over and over and over again. It was not in the common language at that point. Um, very, you could argue that the reason I'm sitting here talking to you goes back to one specific interview we did. Um, there used to be a little publication called Wireless News Flash that was a daily fax that went out to radio stations uh, with like one or two paragraph, you've been in it long enough to remember wireless news. Um, one or two paragraph description of something that might make an interesting guest on your show. So they called us up when we released the book and we were talking to a very young woman on the phone and telling her about our book. And she was trying to be tactful, God love her. But what she said was along the lines of, well, that's very well for, and she didn't say all oh, broads like you, but that's what she meant. Um, but, you know, for a young woman, you're likely to get a reputation. What do you do about that? And we said, well, you're fishing in the wrong pond. Uh, where you are going to find people who are open to what we're talking about is not at the football game. It's gonna be the folks at the Ren Fair, at the science fiction conference, the place where you find geeky people, people who want to imagine realities that are not our reality. That's where you're gonna find people who are open to this kind of thing. So next day we get the article and the headline is, Nerds, Geeks, Make Best Lovers, Say Ethical Slut Duo. And the phone rang off the fucking hook for weeks. I was up at like four in the morning for three weeks every day doing morning drive in one damn city or another. And I really think that, because I never spent a dime on marketing the book. That was how the book launched. And I think that was why it caught. And the words you used in that, simply tell simply yeah. tell the difference in the way things were and the way things are and I'm, go I'm going to bring it from a broadcaster's perspective wireless <laughs> wireless that's your phone yeah fax a daily fax what what's a daily fax <laughs> radio i know morning drive which is starting to go away because people have their spotify yeah the world is a definitely different place oh absolutely and our audiences are entirely different now than they were in 97 when the first edition came out uh back then our audiences were old hippies like us and geeks and nerds um you know we would go and there would be a room full of 
pocket protector types and long hair types and, you know, misfits like us, which was great. We like misfits. They're, that's who's in my Rolodex is misfits. Mm -hmm. um, but these days when I speak, um, the audience is full of all these shiny young professional people uh, who have important jobs and are also poly and out, which you couldn't have done back then. Uh, it's, it's just changed hugely. I think what we're seeing now, and here's me speaking from a publisher's point of view, I'm seeing uh, sales of all the kink books starting to drop fairly severely. Uh, you know, that they're still out there and people are still reading them, but not what it once was. Poly is the word on everybody's lips right now. The poly books are the ones that are continuing to climb and find new audiences. All these things go through their seasons and the season of kink, you know, there'll always be kinky people, but the season in which it was the cool hip new thing that everybody needed to dabble in, that's gone. Polly is that now. You're on your third edition now? Yes. How much different is edition one from edition three? The edition one to edition two was a major, major rewrite, right? Mm -hmm. We took it all apart, put it back together again, because, you know, we knew more and we were better writers. And so we just really uh, did some very serious changes to it between the two editions. I think you'd have trouble finding more than a page or two that were the same between the two editions. Uh, then for the third edition, 10 Speed wanted to do a 20th anniversary edition, God bless them, but we didn't have as many things that we felt urgent about changing. We did want to change some of the language about gender because our understanding of gender had changed a lot in the intervening years. And we also wanted to um, address some of the changes we'd seen in sex positive culture. Uh, for example, more people of color. And we felt that that was very interesting, very important. And we also felt it wasn't our thing to talk about because we are about as white as two women can get. <laughs> so we invited um, the folks from Black and Poly down in LA to do that section for us. We wanted to talk more about new understandings of consent. And we also wanted to pay tribute to Poly pioneers, uh, people who had been doing this back before there were books to read. Uh, so we have little sidebars about uh, the Marston, Moulton, whatever they were, Tria, the, the three mm -hmm. did Wonder Woman and all that, uh, about the Oneida colony in New York, uh, about um, the Bloomsbury group. You know, we just talked about some of the people that we look on as our forebears in Poly uh, and how remarkable it was that they were able to make it work with no support. Uh, no information, no nothing. They were just sort of playing it by ear. Uh, and they made it happen and proved to the rest of us who came later that it could happen. If Professor Marston was teaching in the year 2020, how much different do you think people would be able to understand the dynamic that he was trying to portray because back when he first started and this is from what i see in the movie i have not written written uh, written i've not read a biography but it seems to me that the groundbreaking concepts that he had with wonder woman and in his own life set the table for what we currently have as our way of seeing sex positivity. 
Certainly he was one of them. Um, if he were teaching in the year 2021, he would lose his job because the, <laughs> yes, he the, junior, would, wouldn't the he? junior member of the trio was a student and that's not okay. Um, it was more okay then than it is now, but it's never really been okay, but he got away with it. So I don't have much to say about that, except that folks don't try that at home because it's a bad <laughs> thing. Um, but you look at someone like him, you look at the um, Oberon and Morning Glory Zell who had the big Polly family in Northern California, which was uh, strongly Heinlein influenced and very hippie culture. Uh, all these people who have um, built their own models without any instructions. And no, they're not all what we would think of as ethical poly by contemporary standards, mm -hmm. um, but they did it. And for everyone who does it and gets part of it right, even if they get part of it wrong, that's a new piece of information to help the ones of us who come after do it right the next time. Um, nobody's ever gonna be, do it perfectly any more than anybody does any other kind of relationship perfectly. But we've got, an information base that we're building now that poly community is out in the open. The internet brings people together. There's ways of sharing information and experience. Um, and so we don't have to repeat our mistakes quite as often because other people can share their experiences and tell us what the downfalls are of whatever it is, excuse me, we're trying to do. Um, so the, Community, I, I, if I had to name one thing that's changed about being poly in my lifetime, it's having community. Mm -hmm. It's having people to talk to if things are not working. It's having people to share with if things are working. It's having an early warning system when there's a bad actor in the, in the mix. Uh, all of that it makes it so much safer and so much easier and so much better to be poly. So I have huge respect for people who have done it without that. Could you have imagined a future where the knowledge of poly became so popular when you no. first started writing? I'm still coming to terms with the fact that gay marriage happened. Hmm. I mean, you know, my first boyfriend was gay and committed suicide his freshman year of college. Um, when I think about him and think about what he'd have been able to do if he had been able to stay on the planet for long enough to, um, I also suspect he might've been trans. So another, all of this, you know, to, I was born in 1955, I'm 66. Um, did I ever think I would live to see open conversation about consensual non-monogamy, about, uh, homosexuality, about trans, any of these. No, I never thought I'd live to see that. I grew up in the freaking 50s, you know, come on. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's remarkable. It's every day I just get hit by, oh my God, I live to see this. If you could think of something now that 20 years from now people wouldn't be able to imagine, do you have any concepts that come to mind that you think could be in our future? I would say one of the things that I foresee changing in the next couple of decades is government support for one particular type of relationship and not for others. Um, 
I think it's appalling that the only way you can get all the tax breaks and legal breaks and so on um, for a relationship is to get a piece of paper that has a government stamp on it uh, and that dictates exactly how your relationship should be shaped. Uh, I don't think that's going to last. I think the amount of pressure building against it continues to accumulate. And we're already seeing a little bit of a crack in the dam about um, step parenting, that there's more accommodation for step parenting having a, a legal status as being authentically a way to be a parent. Uh, so I think within your lifetime, if not mine, um, we'll probably see some different legal underpinnings for the different ways people like to shape their relationships. So that I see that changing and it will make the assumption that everybody has to fall into lockstep in pairs um, and have a mortgage together and all the other things that people expect adults to do with their relationships. I think that's gonna look pretty antiquated in 20 years. Hi. My name is Leanne, and I am the owner of Polyphilia, where you can get your daily fix of memes dedicated to polyamory, ethical non-monogamy, and personal growth in open relationships. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Polyphilia Blog, spelt P-O-L-Y-P-H-I-L-I-A-B-L-O-G. I hope to see you there, and please also check out my episode on what women and other wonderful humans want. Hello, I'm Jessie Sage from Peep Show Media. Peep Show Media is a multimedia magazine bringing news and stories from the sex industry. Be sure to check out our website at peepshowmedia.com for essays, porn reviews, events, interviews, news stories, and more. Also, make sure to listen to our podcast, The Peep Show Podcast, anywhere you get podcasts. And for a bit more of a personal glance into my life, make sure to check out my January 15th interview on what women and other wonderful humans want. Do you want to leave us a comment, thought, or have something to contribute to the show? You can now call or text us at the 3W hotline at 513-788-2527. That's 513-788-2527. Or drop us an email at john, J-O-N, at datingkinky.com. That's john, J-O-N, at datingkinky.com. We can't wait to hear from you. Janet has also written many, many books about BDSM, and they have been translated into various languages. I know the ethical slut has been translated into many languages. Yes. I can only imagine what it sounds like in French. <laughs> Actually, that's interesting. Our French publisher is planning to bring it out under two separate titles. He wants to try it with a less alarming title than The Ethical Slut and see if he can push it through into the mainstream. We're watching that closely. I'll be curious to see how he does with it. Um, but yes, I'm sure it sounds very sexy in French. And it's being translated into things like Hungarian that I would never have expected. Uh, so yeah, that one's gone everywhere. Uh, the, the kink books are still, you know, they're out in some of the commoner um, other languages, but they haven't reached anything like as wide uh, uh, a reach as, um, as Slut did. We also have all of Dossie's and my right, not 
wait, not yet. Uh, almost all of Dossie's and my writing is now out as audiobooks mm -hmm. that we voiced ourselves. And uh, my memoir, Girl Fag, just came, no, I'm sorry, the other memoir, Impervious, my kink memoir, just came out as an audiobook as well. We're looking at doing Girl Fag uh, later on. Gets a little yeah. more expensive doing audiobooks when my producer cannot be in the same city as I am, but hopefully this too will pass. Very true. And as I look back at your kink books, you've seen things, I almost feel like Judy Collins, you've seen things from both sides now with the new topping book and the new bottoming book. I am a switch. I am just right deep down in my bones. I am a switch. I am a bisexual poly switch. I do not like to choose. <laughs> Now, that doesn't mean commitment issues are difficult, but... No, it just means, you know, there are so many <laughs> wonderful things to do in the world I can't see, uh, eliminating any of them just offhand. So to write the topping and the bottoming book, did you have to be in a certain mindset in order to write them where you had to kind of get rid of one side of your brain? No. No, to me, it's all the same. It's... Hmm. You know, whether I'm on one end of the whip or the other does not feel much different to me. Mm -hmm. When I'm topping, I need to stay a little bit more in my head, but I've been doing it for long enough now that it's mostly, you know, grooved into the way my muscles work. It's not something that I have to intellectualize much to do it. So I can do what I'm doing and relax into it and get high and have topgasms and all that good stuff. <laughs> and it really feels about the same, except for I'm, you know, my arms are sore, sore instead of my butt being sore afterward. <laughs> um, it's, it's just not much different for me. For people like me who were shocked at the fact that I enjoyed topping when I have been a bottom as long as I can remember. And before I got into kink, it was always about being the one in distress. What are the things that people would be most surprised about by the fact that they do like topping? What is the what is the the thing that draws people towards that side, even though, oh, I'm a bottom, there's no way I could top. And suddenly they're enjoying it. I know a woman who was a bottom for her first decade plus in the scene. And then she became a top. And what she told me about it is that when she bottomed, the scene never came out the way she wanted it to. So she had to learn to top to make the scene work the way she imagined it, which makes total sense to me. I utterly get that. Um, and that is being a top feels like being the director of a stage show. Hmm. You're, you're bringing all these things together, the sounds and the smells and the rhythms, and you're making them all work in symphony and the rewards are a lot like that you know you might not be the one on the stage you're the one who's behind the scenes making all these good things happen so that the one who's out on the stage can do what they do and get their jollies doing what they do so that's kind of the way it feels to me i i, I come back to theater as a metaphor for kink a lot because i think it's a really good one mistress diamond blue and i have been talking about when things uh, get totally opened up and things like Montreal Fetish Weekend are easy for everybody to attend and not just if you're worried about it for one year. And may, maybe we're going to get back to that soon. But we've been talking about teaching, and I'm very interested to hear what you think about this with the theater uh, analogies there. 
we're thinking about teaching a seminar called Improv and Kink when yes and <laughs> turns into oh yes. <laughs> I used to do a class called Fantasy Roleplay Improv Night, where <laughs> I would invite people to write their fantasy on an index card. And I, I told them, I'm a switch. I can top, I can bottom, I can be male, I can be female. You know, I, I will fit myself into your fantasy. You tell me what your fantasy is, and we'll do our best to play it together for the audience. And it was the most scary thing I've ever done in Kinkland, and it was so much fun. Uh, sometimes the scenes were bliss, and sometimes they didn't quite click, but, you know, welcome to the world. That's the way scenes are. Um, but, yeah, putting yourself out there on, the, on your personal edges like that, that's kind of my high as a player is playing with my own emotional edges. I'm not an edge player physically. I'm, you know, I'm basically an impact player. I like hitting people. I like getting hit. But playing with trauma, playing with dark, shadowy stuff, mm -hmm. yeah, that's my meat and potatoes. I love that. The thing about improv is that it's all based on the term yes and. Yes. Where you don't take what is given to you and take it on your own way. Yeah. And the reason we thought that an improv for kink would help so much is for bottoms, understanding what yes and is about and yeah. accepting the gifts and being able to move forward with that and not worry about, well, I have to take it this way or the, old, the famous bottom, <laughs> topping from the bottom. Yeah. And also for tops, being able to take the gift of a reaction of a bottom and be able to move in a way that is totally off the top of the head as opposed to, I'm going to do A, B, C, D. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like, get into their body rhythms and get let, let your intuition guide you uh, in a scene like that. Yeah, that's, I used to also teach a class called Intuition and Reading Your Bottom that was about that. Um, so yeah, you're, you're definitely playing my song there. So I'm all for your class. Is curiosity one of the biggest controllers of kink? You know, I have a, this may or may not be an answer to your question, but I belong to a brunch group here in Eugene of, we, we call ourselves women and former women, because some of us are non-binary. <laughs> um, and we don't have much in common. We're, most of us are queer, but not all. Most of us are kinky, but not all. But we figured out once that what we all are is curious. We're all people who want to know things that we don't already know. And I think curiosity is part of sex positivity. And if kink happens to be your, your bent, then yeah, of course, it's going to reflect in that way. But I think what we're talking about here is not closing oneself off to possibilities. Um, and that's where curiosity has its home, is what could I do if? Mm -hmm. When you wrote books like The Sexually Dominant Woman, an illustrated guide for nervous beginners, which by the way, might be one of my favorite titles of all time. Thank you. When you talk about people who are maybe not comfortable being the dominant person, but have this feeling in their heart that they need to take control of something, 
how do you address women who might be scared to actually step up, step forward and be able to show that side of their personality when sometimes people are going do anything but? Yeah, yeah. Um, I would reassure them that they are not the only ones, that they are not even a small minority, that pretty much all dominant women go through a period or maybe always of feeling uncertain, of feeling like uh, they can't quite find their way in to the mindset that feels dominant to them. And the other thing I would tell them is baby steps. You do not have to do a fully orchestrated scene with props and voices and stiletto heels and the whole nine yards. Um, maybe just try holding his hands down for your first time taking control in some small way. You know, you don't have to do a paddling. You might want to do a little bit of biting and, you know, ease your way into it. A, you're not going to get into as much trouble if something goes wrong. And B, you will find where your comfort zone is and it'll change. Hopefully as you proceed, your comfort zone will uh, grow. Occasionally you'll have a scene go haywire and your comfort zone will re retreat again for a while. And that happens too. So you just have to kind of stay with it. Is the following statement accurate? That control isn't about the paddle or the whip, it's about the mind. Absolutely. All the paddles, all the whips, all the restraints, those are the how. Um, the what has to do with connection at an energetic level. Um, and I think what the paddles and the whips and the restraints are about is distracting our intellects enough that we can let whatever's inside all that veneer of intellectuality shine out. Um, once we break down that shell, um, we can meet our partner at an energetic level that it can happen without all the whips and chains and all of that. But it's easier with them. <laughs> I mean, if, if, if you're like us, if you're, if you're bent that way, um, they're great tools, but they're tools. Is there room in literature? Because right now, as far as kink is concerned, and I realize you said that the kink, uh, the kink dynamic is going down while poly is going up. If you're talking about Q ratings, I guess you could yes. say. We have books on the the who, the what, and even the uh, how, but I don't see a lot of books about the why, meaning people sharing their stories, because one of the things that I've noticed is, especially in my own personal journey, is sometimes we think we're the only ones. Oh, God, yes. Um, one of the first pink books on the market actually was a book called Different Loving that was edited by Gloria Brain and her partners. Um, and it was nothing but interviews with kinky people. And at the time that it came out, I was working as the uh, hotline manager for the Society of Janice in San Francisco. And it was just wonderful because I did get calls from people living in Dubuque or somewhere uh, who felt like they were the only person in the world. And I could say, no, there's this book. Go get this book. You'll see, A, that you're not the only one in the world, and B, that this, there's more variety to kink than you can possibly imagine. 
I mean, when I first came out into kink, I thought that meant spanking. Mm -hmm. In my brain, it does and did. Um, and it took some really <laughs> uncomfortable scenes, like the one with the guy who wanted to be walked on, before <laughs> I found out that, no, that is not all there is to kink. Um, so that's, yeah, just getting the word out to people who feel alone. There, there are not nearly as many as there once were because the internet has helped that. Mm -hmm. You know, back when I came into the scene, it was hard to find the scene. You had to pick up the, the right little underground newspaper and then you had to go to a meeting and the meeting was very secret and you had to walk into a strange house where you didn't know anybody by yourself into this meeting of kinky people having no idea what to expect. Mm -hmm. You had to want it bad to do that. Um, these days you go tappity tap and there it all is. It opens out all, all in front of you mm -hmm. on the internet. So you don't meet as many people. You know, the, the upside of that is people do not need to feel isolated anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, the downside is that I think a lot of people don't take it with as much seriousness as it merits. They, they, they feel that it's sort of a frivolous little diversion and they don't understand how genuinely risky it is, and I'm not talking on a physical level here, although that's true too, but how emotionally risky it is. Um, and they don't take the time to learn the way they should to do something that has risks to it. It's like buying a sports car and never having driven a sports car, you take it out on the track and run it around at 200 miles an hour. You just, you need to learn. When we take a look at generations, and many would say that people who are our age, and I'm about, I'm within 10 years of you. A lot of times people might say, oh, that's just the old folks talking, or that's, that's back in their generation. What is it that the new generation is getting right? Because we always talk about what they're getting wrong. What are they getting right? They're getting right that they can fold this into their lives in whatever way it fits. It does not have to be this discrete entity that either you're doing it or you're not. Um, it can be part of your life, like a hobby, or, you know, it's, it's not a thing where you have to go to a dungeon to do it and you have to have the secret password and all, all of that. You, you can just be a kinky person at whatever level works for you. And that level might be, you know, bull whips and padlocks and all, all the nasty, heavy stuff, or it might be, you know, hand spanking. Mm -hmm. um, and whatever works, works. I get really testy with um, kinky people who, it, it's like they're going for the merit badge. Um, <laughs> You have to know how to do all these things, whether or not it turns you on, whether or not it turns your partner on. If you're going to be a real dom, you have to know how to do scrotal inflation, for God's sake. Who, who, who stays up late at night thinking, boy, I can't wait till I find the kink community so I can do scrotal inflation? No, you, you do what turns you on. Um, that's, that, that's my biggest beef, I think, with the kink scene is it's become about, and this is my generation more than the younger one, it's, it's become about who can do the coolest, riskiest, most fabulous to look at scene, and who cares if anybody is having fun or anyone is feeling connected or anyone is having an orgasm. 
look at my cool scene, look what I did. Mm -hmm. And that's not what I went through, all I went through to come to the scene for. Uh, I, I came to the scene for connections and intensity that I couldn't get outside it. And if you're playing around with the tools to make something that looks good to the onlookers, that's not what I'm here for. People many times get kink and sex so intertwined from the outside world, but those of us in the community realize that, okay, it can be about the sex, but it's always about the moment, correct? Um, I have a much broader definition of sex than most people do. Okay. Uh, and in my working definition is if it makes you feel sexy, then it's sex. Um, and so to me, kink is sex. It may or may not be genital. It may or may not include um, genital orgasm, but I do it because it turns me on. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it turns me on enough that orgasm seems entirely beside the point because I'm so high and so connected and so in the moment that an orgasm would just be a distraction. Uh, but that moment or those moments of being that connected and in that much intensity and with that light flowing into me. You know, I know how to get orgasms. There's a perfectly good vibrator in the next room over, but <laughs> that kind of intense energy is something I can't do all by myself. I, I need to connect it with somebody else to make the current flow. And to me, that's what I'm in the, in the dungeon for is getting that current to flow. What would the Janet Hardy now say to the Janet Hardy that grew up in the 50s and 60s? Darling, you're a big old pervert. And the sooner you come to terms with that, the happier you'll be. Um, but honestly, I grew up thinking I was like in my mid-20s before I figured out that I was not the only person in the world who got turned on thinking about spanking. You know, I was a suburban wife and mom. I did not have access to porn or big city magazines or any of the things that might have tipped me off to that. Uh, I knew that I liked thinking about that a whole lot and that when I was thinking about it, I was not really in my body much and liable to do stupid things. Uh, but it took me a while to get it that, that those were sexual thoughts, um, that I was getting sexually turned on thinking about that. I just thought it was stories that I like to think about. Um, which is, you know, talk about your young audiences. That's unimaginable for a young audience now. Mm -hmm. There's no way you can reach, you know, the ripe old age of 12 without knowing that spanking is something that people do for sexual fun. But it was different for me. I remember seeing a picture of a woman in leotards and tights on the front of a penthouse forum. Uh, it was almost like a little booklet, almost the size oh, of a Reader's yeah. Digest. My first a man down and, and holding that person down. And I, wow. that was when I was like 15 and I was like, oh my God, somebody else. Uh, actually, my dearest friend is another cat suit lover. So I, <laughs> I happen to know, I, I own one from when I was dating him. I went out and bought one and it's around here somewhere. I haven't had it on in years, but it's still here. <laughs> 
but yes, you, that feeling of I'm not the only one. This is a thing people do. And if it's a thing people do, if I could find a person like that, we could do it. And it wouldn't be ridiculously dangerous and it wouldn't be contrary to my personal ethics. I don't have to be non-consensual. I don't have to be evil. I can just find someone who likes it and I like it and we do it. It was like, you know, wow. Um, so I, I, I'm pleased that the world is such that very few people have to go through that anymore. Is the topic of gender identification to today what your examination of the term slut was back 23 years ago? There's certainly parallels. Um, I think we're still uh, Ms. Magazine used to have a regular, regular monthly feature called Mid-Revolutionary Mores. And I go back to that over and over because as far as gender is concerned, we are definitely in the midst of Mid-Revolutionary -re mid Mores. We're still figuring it all out. It's changing faster than anybody can keep track of. The newest edition of Slut was ready to leave for the printer before I made an ex-cathedra decision about whether to spell trans with an, uh, an asterisk or not because at that time, the two spellings were kind of duking it out. And I chose right, because the asterisk mostly is, has been dropped. But, you know, it's my job to keep track of these things, and I can't do it. Uh, there's rarely a week in which I don't encounter a name for some new sexual orientation that I have to go look up somewhere, because mm. it's all changing too fast. Um, and I don't know what's going to all settle down to be. Whatever it's all gonna settle down to be will be less binary than what I grew up with. I'm pretty clear on that. Um, I would like for it to be more about generally loosening up on the whole gender role thing than about simply creating a new category of gender. What I would like is for gender not to mean anything except what it means, which is very little really. It has a little, little bit to do with anatomy um, and a lot to do with culture, but I'm not sure that we need it to have anything to do with culture. You know, I, I, I've come to call myself gender irrelevant because <laughs> that's what, it, you know, yeah, I'm female. I'm, I have a female body. I have a cesarean scar, hard to, hard to deny that. But so what, you know, it has no relevance to anything that's happening in my life. I want people to not notice or not care what my gender is. And I think all the brouhaha we're going through around um, new definitions of gender is headed in that direction, where gender means nothing except what the individual wants it to mean. Um, so I doubt I'll be around to see that, but I'm really looking forward to it. One of my good friends who goes by the wonderful scene name of Not Today Satan. <laughs> once looked at me and says, you are a wonderful human, which led to the title of this show being what women and other wonderful humans want. Indeed. I am hoping that by the time my kids are grown and are raising their kids, that it's not about race or nationality or gender. It's just about being a wonderful human. Couldn't agree more. My first grandchild was born a few months ago. And 
my son and his wife chose not to know the gender of the child until he came and are still choosing not to gender him in terms of how he's dressed or the appurtenances of his, his room and so on. And I couldn't be more pleased about that. It's, I get to meet him in a few weeks. COVID has finally loosened up enough that I can go down to LA and meet him. I cannot wait. Congratulations, that's Thank absolutely you. wonderful. Thank you, I was beginning to give up hope, but. It's a wonderful thing. It is, it is, and he's the most beautiful baby in the world, of course. I can tell, there are pictures. So anyway, that's me being a, a gushy grandmother, but, uh, or grandparent, I suppose. I chose my grandparent name as Jammy, which is Janet and <laughs> Grammy or something put together, but I originally said Jamma, and then I thought, no, you know, I'm skewing female these days, but that changes and I'm not gonna wanna be called Jamma if I start feeling male again. So, Jamie. That's great. Life is complicated these days. <laughs> Janet, is there anything you would like to make sure that our audience knows about either how to connect with you or any future projects that you would like them to know about uh, heading to, uh, in the summer towards the fall? I'm working on another memoir. This will be my third. And it will be my memoir about the years in which I was becoming notorious as a pervert and a polyamorist at the same time as I was raising my voice. So I'm blogging it as I write it and illustrate it. It's at slutandsons.com, which is the title of the book. Um, and so, so if somebody wants to see uh, what I'm up to these days, that's what's taking up most of my work. Um, I have two other memoirs that a lot of people don't know about. Um, my first is called Girl Fag, A Life Told in Sex and Musicals. And that's more about my gender life. And my second is Impervious Chronicle, or excuse me, Confessions of a Semi-Retired Deviant. Uh, and that's my kink memoir. So those two, you know, they're not as well known as some of my other books, but they're actually the children of my heart. I love those two books. And Slut and Sons is gonna be another good one, I think. Um, so if people want to know more about me or my life or what I do, then I would point them toward those books and toward the blog. Fantastic. It has been an absolute joy and pleasure having you on the podcast today. And uh, just so enlightening to finally get to meet one of the people that has been such an influence in many of my friends' lives. And for that, I say thank you. For that, I say you're very, very welcome. And thank you for having me on the show. Great insight from a woman who has brought such acknowledgement to the thoughts of so many women I know. This is truly a must read. And as one person called it in a review, it's a great book on how to be a human. And that will do it for this week's show. I'm John, also known as Hi There Catsuit, thanking you for being with us. I hope I've earned the privilege of your time and remind you to always remember consent and to love each other always. What women and other wonderful humans want connects with you. Leave us a message at 513-788-2527. And we invite you to follow us on social media. Check us out at What Women Want P1 on Twitter, What Women Want Podcast on Instagram, and for our kinky friends on FetLife at WWW Podcast. 
This has been a presentation of Dating Kinky. We're kinky done differently.